From the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University, this is Speaking Freely. I'm Sanford Unger. Most Americans are generally familiar with the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says, in part, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It seems pretty clear and pretty simple, but of course it isn't. The Supreme Court has made it clear that free speech is not absolute, and one classic example is that you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes used that analogy in a 1919 decision affirming the government's right to restrict speech in some circumstances. The court has continued to issue rulings over the years, restricting free speech in certain cases. In April 2003, the court upheld state laws banning cross-burning. Here are excerpts from a report on that decision by NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. The core of the cross-burning question is one posed in other settings as well. Where does free speech end and intimidation begin? The cases before the court illustrate the subtleties of the legal question. Today, the Supreme Court upheld the law only, however, in limited circumstances. The vote was 6-3 to with no single opinion commanding a majority. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the bulk of the opinion. The First Amendment guarantee of free speech is not absolute, she noted, and in light of cross-burning's long and pernicious history as a signal of impending violence, it too can be banned if it can be proved it's aimed at intimidation. As Justice O'Connor noted, there are different types of cross-burnings, and she said a cross-burning at a political rally, even one that arouses anger among the vast majority of citizens who see the burning cross, is not aimed particularly at intimidation. First Amendment experts said that today's ruling will make it easier to prosecute those who use their freedom of expression to intimidate others. Emma Lanzo is a free speech advocate and director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, where she works on protecting First Amendment rights on the Internet. If we're thinking about sort of free speech problems or or issues of problematic content, I think a big part of the challenge is that we don't always have agreement about what problematic content really means. So one of the first questions you have to ask is, what kinds of speech do you think need to come down? What is the kind of material that a different platform should or could be targeting? And then you have to look at how do they define that material. So if we're talking about something like hate speech, which under US law is likely protected by the Constitution, but is also can be very hurtful and damaging and can really disrupt having sort of civil political discourse. Um, And whether it's constitutionally the case or not, many people think, intuitively react and say, well, hate speech should not be protected by free speech, even though we think it is. Right. So that's a place where the kind of the strong case law coming out of the Supreme Court around what the First Amendment limits government censorship, it's really a different issue when you're looking at private platforms like a Facebook or a YouTube who are creating content policies that apply to millions or even billions of people around the world, it's a really different sort of experiment (laughs) that they're doing of how to kind of identify and define a policy that could really work across many, Mm -hmm. many different contexts that they're working in. But I think one of the key issues to think about for any sort of online content issue is the issue of scale, 
we're talking about millions and billions of files, whether it's images or text posts or videos being uploaded to services every single day. There's really no way to have a, an actual person review all of that material before right. it goes live. So the chances are you're going to have a combination of automated moderation, you know, um, machine learning algorithms, something as simple as keyword filters involved in kind of screening material, and then you're really going to have to do a lot of post hoc review. You know, when somebody has noticed a post that seems to violate a company's terms or maybe is illegal, then bring people into the process to review it. Who decides? A lot of the social media companies mm -hmm. have said that they've increased their staff dramatically yep. to monitor content to try to find things like this. Mm -hmm probably pretty difficult to find these things. It can be, yes. So the current state of play for most of the really big social media platforms, for example, involves using a mix of automation to try to identify easier things like spam or images of nudity can be relatively easy to identify but also, in some cases, tens of thousands of content moderators who receive kind of the, the notifications that either an automated system or another user has flagged a piece of content and says... Tens of thousands That's of the, yeah, I moderators. think Facebook's announcement earlier this year was that they were going to something like double the number of people working on kind of the safety and security issues uh, around content. So reviewing content defining the policies and um, and really kind of evaluating whether material violates their But policies. literally, Facebook employs or will employ or is thinking about employing tens of thousands of people. It conjures up in my mind a room or a vast, of course they don't all work in the same room, they probably work at home, <laughs> but a vast number of people. Yeah, and there's some really interesting research going on right now about this sort of, you know, who are these moderators? Who are these people? Who are they? <laughs> and the, so, well, it, it depends, again, and it depends on the kind of platform, but for the biggest platforms, um, it seems like a lot of the work is done on kind of a contract basis. So rather than being a full employee of the social media platform, there are now companies that kind of specialize in being subcontractors for content moderation. There's also a lot of use of services like Mechanical Turk or Crowdflower, so sort of crowdsourcing platforms as a way to reach people who are freelancing from their home to do content moderation. You know, the way I think of it is when you're trying to put a global scale censorship system in place, you know, what does that practically actually require? And because people are so much better at evaluating the meaning of content than Machine machines. learning, with as many advancements as there have been in machine learning, with as kind of exciting and dynamic as that field is, it's still so much easier for people to make a, a kind of a determination about does this really merit hate uh, in, count as hate speech or not. In one sense, that's a relief that nothing's been found that can substitute for the human brain mm -hmm. in figuring these things out. On the other hand, it makes it sound like an almost insuperable task. And, as you say, censorship on a global scale mm -hmm. does not sound like a concept we want to embrace. Right, and that, that you know, you're seeing a little bit of my, my bias, my orientation to these issues where, you know, I think one of the places where our public policy discussions are really foundering right now is this sense that perfect application of a platform's terms of service is the goal, right? Like, if you think of how kind of laws or even societal norms around speech have operated in the course of human history, we haven't really ever had a situation where it was even possible to have 
perfect application of those rules. You know, we have laws in the U.S. against making a true threat against somebody, for example. At the end of the day, we have some high-profile cases that really, in the law, that really help define the boundaries of what is and is not legal to say. But when we're looking at kind of moderating speech online, the instinct seems to be much more like there should be zero instances of threatening speech or zero instances of hate speech on the platform. It sounds to me as if society is confronted with a very difficult dilemma. Is it worth the risk that many people will be silenced who shouldn't be in order to silence a few or some who should be or or who who we think should be? And that's where, again, like kind of thinking about being in this really, this environment of experimentation, because on the other hand, you know, I was talking about the people who will be censored with really broad application of laws, but, or, or rules on a content platform. But on the other hand, you know, you have the people who are chilled by a lack of moderation. There are so many different kind of studies that show that women and people of color and, you know, different traditionally marginalized voices and speakers find it much less easy to participate in online discussions because of the harassment they face, because right. of, um, you know, because of hate speech, because of targeted threats. You know, we have had people say to us in the Free Speech Project that they will not do interviews like the very one that you and I are conducting now because they are worried about trolls finding them and harassing them because of some remark they may have made in the interview. That chilling effect is really real. And I think it's important for as we think about, you know, (laughs) what ideal response to problematic content do we want a Facebook to take or a much smaller platform to take, you know, it's, I don't think there's one clear, easy answer. There are a lot of different kinds of interests and incentives at play, a lot of different kinds of speakers who benefit from from different styles of moderation. A lot of people say that Europe has figured this out much better than the United States, that, that the European community and individual European nations have put in place a, a right to be forgotten or, or not to be remembered <laughs> and get things erased from the internet right. in Europe. Or at least a uh, right to be delisted from search <coughs> results. Yeah. Right. That sounds more modest, but that's probably exactly <laughs> yeah. what it is, a right yeah. to be delisted from search results. So is that a model that we should be aspiring to follow? So that is a really, a really complicated question, I think. The way it stands in Europe today is that it's actually the search engines, Google and Bing, Microsoft search engine, and the Yahoo or Oath search engine, the companies who run the search engines receive requests from people. They've all developed different forms and and kind of ways of evaluating these and basically have to kind of play the role of a judge and say, you know, has this person made a reasonable claim to say this lawfully posted public information that's available on a website that is open to the public is irrelevant or no longer relevant or otherwise kind of inappropriate to link to their name right now. But there was an interesting case just recently in um, the United Kingdom uh, where there were two different um, people who I believe had been convicted of some kind of fraud um, in the past. And so they had each made requests to Google to say, please stop returning articles about this old fraud conviction when people search my name. Google had rejected both cases saying, you know, it's really relevant, your business people, Mm -hmm. it's really relevant that you were convicted for fraud even if it was 10, 15 years ago from their estimation that's relevant to anybody who might be trying to 
find out information about you, you know, deciding to go into business with you in the future. Google rejected their claims. They took their claims to court, and the, the court in the UK had a split decision. They decided that one of the people had shown sufficient remorse and really seemed to have reformed himself, mm -hmm. and so Google should really delist any of the re you know references to this past conviction because he he was really sorry but the other man had not shown sufficient remorse and so Google should continue to keep the information about the conviction in his search results and to me it's just such a great encapsulation of how kind of ludicrous it is to be expecting a tech company mm -hmm. to be making that level of determination about who merits what kind of very almost, precise reputational remedy. Almost requires a staff psychologist or something. <laughs> right. to and a lot of like, or a private investigator, right, or right. I, I mean the sort of looking at the role that governments around the world, and particularly in Europe, are asking these tech companies to play. I think we should be really cautious about this because, you know, we've just come from you know, months and months of discussion about the role of different platforms in, say, the 2016 elections here in the U.S. The push in Europe to put even more power on the shoulders of, like, power and responsibility, but ultimately kind of to play the role of judges in deciding right. what speech is lawful and what speech isn't lawful, I think that's a sort of further centralization of power to intermediaries who... To the tech uh, companies. Yeah, to the tech companies. To social media. Yeah. Is there a different American solution on the horizon? What, there's a piece of legislation referred to as SESTA, S-E-S-T-A. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, what would that do, and what is that, what is that about? So SESTA has been passed into law. Um, it was a, a big debate through the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018. The, what does it stand for? It, uh, Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. And there's a companion bill in the House. Sounds um, like something nobody could be against. Right. <laughs> and, that was, and that was a big dynamic of the kind of the legislative right. process around the bill, where ultimately the kind of combined version of the House and the Senate draft passed with overwhelming support, overwhelming bipartisan support in both chambers, in part because who can vote against a bill that's about stopping sex trafficking. Right. But there were a number of folks in the civil liberties community and also um, in the tech industry pointing out that there were some serious flaws with these bills and kind of the approach that they take. One kind of underlying piece of the, the legal framework to understand is a law called Section 230 of the Communications Act. This is a law that basically sets the kind of the legal framework where a content host or somebody else dealing with third-party content, so think, you know, Twitter and Facebook, but also search engines, domain names, um, you know, a web hosting provider if you're going to run your own website. All of those kinds of intermediaries have protections under Section 230 that mean they are not legally responsible for content authored by a third party. So if I were to, for some reason, to tweet something defamatory about you, you could sue me for having defamed you. But I couldn't sue the platform on which you had done. Right. You can't sue Twitter for like being the publisher of that right. defamation. And this law, it's hard to overstate its importance in the development of the internet in the U.S. It is the reason that we have social media. It is the reason that we have any sort of willingness of... Section 230 is the Section reason. 230, yeah. Combined with, you know, the strong protections for free speech under right. the First Amendment, right. but it really is this foundational law uh, passed in, in 1996 that has led to all of these different online services, websites, social media platforms um, that we all use today, because if any of those platforms could face 
potential lawsuits for hosting our speech, they're not going to do it, right? It's right. just it's just as simple as you know the fact that a even successfully defending a lawsuit can still bankrupt a small sure. company. SESTA changes some of that. It now enables state attorneys general and state prosecutors to bring cases against website operators under laws that kind of match the federal criminal mm -hmm. um, standards around sex trafficking and facilitation of prostitution. Um, so that really expands the universe of prosecutors who could uh, bring cases against websites. There's also expanded ability for people to bring civil suits against websites looking for a recovery of damages, for example, for victims of sex trafficking. But isn't the prevention or the punishment of sex trafficking, which is such a terrible concept, isn't that so important that we ought to be willing to sacrifice some procedural difficulties or state-by-state -state conflicts or yeah. whatever in order to accomplish a, a, a very well-recognized good? Yeah. One of the big questions with SESTA and FOSTA as they've passed is, one, whether they were necessary to do the kind of the stated goal of going after um, websites that host sex trafficking mm -hmm. ads, and two, whether they'll actually be effective at helping reduce or eliminate sex trafficking. So on the, the first point, just days before the bill was actually signed into law, a federal grand jury investigation that had been underway for over a year in the state of Arizona against the website Backpage.com issued something like over 90 er, charges um, in finally indicting seven different executives of Backpage.com under existing law. This Backpage indictment, you know, we'll see how it plays out in courts, we'll see kind of what it means, but it was not necessary to change the existing legal framework in order to bring the prosecutions right. against this website. So what you're saying is it makes Congress feel good, they're taking a, they're drawing a line in the sand, they're taking a position against sex trafficking, but it didn't really advance the Well, and so in this case, it doesn't seem like it was necessary to change the law at all. Prosecutors found plenty of charges mm -hmm. to bring against the right. operators of that website. Right. So if, if this legislation is not a useful tool, mm -hmm. what are we to do? How do we fix this perceived problem of reputations being damaged, people being harmed in some very concrete ways by things that take place right. on social media? For me, I think it's a, it's a mix of different strategies. Um, one of the shortcomings of any national law that's trying to target some kind of bad speech is that the internet is a global network. The fundamental issue with going after the online content aspect of crimes or other issues is you're playing whack-a-mole. That content is going to come up somewhere else on the internet, almost certainly. Um, so I think f as far as kind of criminal enforcement goes, um, focusing on the kind of the actual perpetrators of the issue, focus on sex traffickers, focus on people who are the actual people who are issuing threats against people or are conducting harassment campaigns against individuals. That is absolutely appropriate for law enforcement to do, and we probably need to see a lot more of it in a lot of different cases. So there are no experts, there are no people to solve this problem. There are plenty of people who are working very hard on this issue, but I think it, it is important for us to realize that this is kind of a novel thing that we're 
looking to do in in human societies to you know if you think of the job that Facebook is trying to do of creating a content policy that applies across a global user base of more than two billion people when everything we know about how people communicate is that context is so important and what counts as harassment in one community right. does not you know counts as a really funny joke in another community this is an incredibly big challenge let alone you know the idea that we everyone sort of sets their barometer of just how much speech do they want to see censored very differently and I'd like to be able to say thank you for making us all feel better about this <laughs> But maybe I just have to be content that you've explained it to us and given us a sense of just how enormous a problem this is, not only for the Internet, but for free speech overall. Well, if I can leave you with one, one positive note, um, I am still at heart an optimist about the Internet. It's a big Internet out there. There's lots of different options. And I would encourage people to think, what is the kind of experience that they really want to have? And where can they go and find that? And if they can't find that, is it something that they can kind of work to create themselves? Emma Lanzo is the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. For an extended version of our conversation, you can visit the Speaking Freely section of our website, freespeechproject.georgetown.edu. Our project is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Sanford Unger. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Speaking Freely. Mm -hmm.